Hear this, O elders, and listen, O inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let their sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locusts have eaten. And what the creeping locusts have left, the stripping locusts have eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded the land, mighty and without number. The teeth, their teeth it's, are like the teeth of a lion, and its fangs are like that of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig trees splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin, gird, uh, girded with uh, sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vines dry up, and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate and the palm also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourself with sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off from before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of the cattle wander aimlessly, because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and the flames have burned up, and all the trees of the field, even the beasts of the field, pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up. And the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. <coughs> Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Those were the opening words of a speech made by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt at a joint session of Congress. After stating that the attack came unprovoked and in the midst of ongoing negotiations uh, with the Japanese diplomats, the president asked the Congress to declare war on the nation of Japan, and they did so 30 minutes later. Now, perhaps the best book on the attack of Pearl Harbor was written by Gordon Prang. It's entitled, At Dawn We Slept. Now, Prang was a history professor at the University of Maryland from 1937 to 1980. He was also on the staff of General Douglas MacArthur during the American occupation of Japan after the war. It was at that time that Prang was able to collect material and interview lots of Japanese military officers to gather information that he would use later in the writing of his book. Now, the title of that book, At Dawn We Slept, refers to the timing of the raid. It began at 7.48 on a Sunday morning, and by an hour and a half later, all eight battleships of the Pacific Fleet had been sunk or badly damaged. Nine other ships and some 340 planes had been destroyed. 2,335 people were killed in the attack and 1,143 were wounded. If at dawn 
America slept, the nation certainly received a wake-up call that morning. Now, the Free Dictionary of Farlix says the phrase, a wake-up call, refers to a, a portent, portentous event, a report or a situation that brings an issue to immediate attention. Think about the collapse of the bridge down in Minneapolis over I-35 and how that brought immediate attention to the need to repair our bridges. Well, in the days of the prophet Joel, God had sent the kingdom of Judah a wake-up call, not in the form of a military attack, but in a form of a natural disaster. Not an invasion of a foreign army, but the invasion of millions upon millions of locusts, which devastated the land and threatened to bring starvation to the inhabitants of the land. Well, rather than seeing the locust as merely a natural occurrence, the prophet saw the hand of the Lord behind the devastation. And so the answer was not better pest control, but repentance. Before they could be rid of the locusts, the people had to rid themselves of their sins. Well, here in this opening chapter of Joel, he graphically describes the destruction of this locust plague that it was having on the land. But he also calls the people to humble themselves and to call on the Lord to deliver them from their peril. Well, folks, listen, because I want you to interpret the events that you see in our world and the events in your own life through an understanding of God's sovereignty over everything, we want to look at this opening chapter of Joel where God gives a wake-up call to a sinful nation. So to do that, why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Help us to understand what your word says because it does give us a lens by which we can interpret much of what's going on in our world even today. So bless us now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I mentioned the collapse of that 35W bridge in Minneapolis. Do you remember when that occurred? If I recall right, Pastor Allen had gone over that bridge earlier that day. My daughter not only went over it, but she had co-workers who were on the bridge when it collapsed. One of them was on the part that had dropped down like this. She was still in her car. She didn't go in. Well, when it was said and done, 13 people died, 145 were injured. And shortly after the collapse, National Public Radio uh, interviewed John Piper. I guess they would chose him because uh, his church is just on the other side of the river, and he's known for believing in the sovereignty of God over all things. Now, often when pastors ask questions after some kind of disaster or accident like this, the interviewer will say, where was God in all of this? And the pastor will usually say something like, well, you know, God didn't want this to happen. He was just as shocked and outraged as we are by the events. Now, Piper didn't do that. Instead, he mentioned the story from the Bible where someone came to Jesus and asked him about some people who were slaughtered by Pilate when they were doing their sacrifices. Jesus responded by saying this, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Or those 18 on whom that tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the rest living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you also will perish. Piper told the NPR interviewer that when the bridge collapsed and people died, our first question shouldn't be, why did this happen to them? But why hasn't it happened to us? Considering the way we've treated God and belittled his glory, the amazing thing is that we haven't all perished already. Well, the NPR reporter was surprised by this answer. I mean, who talks like this in the midst of a tragedy? But I remember how she interviewed the, or ended the interview. She said, thank you. Thank you. This was just fascinating. Just fascinating. Folks, every traumatic event that we hear about should be a wake-up call for each of us to repent of our own sins. Well, what do we see in this wake-up call found in chapter 1 of Joel? I think we're going to outline the, the chapter with just three phrases or words. The first, you can put down consider. Consider, and that's verses 2 to 4. The second is wail, and that's verses 5 to 12. 
And the third is cry out. And that's 14 to 20. You know, in Ecclesiastes 7.14, Solomon wrote this, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. For the Lord has made one as well as the other. National Public Radio has a program called All Things Considered. Well, the prophet Joel wanted the people to consider and take stock of what they had experienced in a recent national disaster. He opens his prophecy by saying this, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all the inhabitants of the land. Has anything happened like this in your day or in your father's day? Tell your sons about it and let them tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locusts have left, the swarming locusts have eaten. And what the swarming locusts have left, the creeping locusts have eaten. And what the creeping locusts have left, the stripping locusts have eaten. The country experienced the locust plague, bringing devastations the likes of which had never been seen before in their day or in their parents' day. 1997, Red River Valley between Minnesota and North Dakota was deluged in what was called the flood of the century. The river crested at 54 feet and flooded some three miles past its banks. Amazingly, no one was killed, but there was $3.5 billion of damage which resulted. The last time the river had, raised, uh, uh, had risen that high was back in 1826. Now closer to where we're at, there was a disaster not of a flood, but of a fire. The Great Hinkley Fire back in 1897. It burned a quarter of a million acres and killed some 476 people. The town of Hinkley itself was incinerated. The fire came after two months of drought conditions. What made it worse was the way they did logging at the time. They would cut down the logs and they would just leave the branches on the ground where they were. Well, that caused great tinder to be used for the fire. And no one knows exactly when or where it started, but when it got underway, the temperatures reached up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, according to the Wikipedia article that I read. Listen to what it says. Barrels of nails melted into one mass, and in the yard of the eastern Minnesota uh, rail line, the wheels of the car fused to the rails. Some residents escaped by climbing into wells or ponds or the Grindstone River, James Root, an engineer on a train heading south from Duluth, rescued nearly 300 people by backing up the train nearly five miles to Skunk Lake, where the passengers escaped from the fire. One of the people who died in that fire was a man named Boston Corbett, the man known as Lincoln's Avenger. He shot John Wilkes Booth, the man who assassinated President Lincoln. Well, traumatic events make the stuff of folklore. Tales passed down from generation to generation. Well, in Joel's day, the traumatic event was not a fire or a flood, but a swarm of locusts which had destroyed the land. Now, locusts are grasshoppers, and normally they're harmless, but after a drought um, and rapid vegetation increase, it does something weird with their little brains, and it increases the serotonin, which causes them to join together in great swarms which can fly over hundreds and hundreds of miles. And at this time, they breed rapidly, and they have ferocious appetites so that they strip away all the vegetation, and they'll chew off even the bark on a tree. Now, the most severe locust plague we ever had in the United States was back in 1874, known as the Rocky Mountain Locust Plague. It first appeared in June of that year. The swarm was estimated to have had some, listen to this, 12 trillion locusts in it. They infested a vast area from Montana to Minnesota, down to the Great Plains and as far south as Texas. According to the Timeline website, quote, the locusts devoured not only the crops, but they gnawed on nearly every organic material, including sawdust, leather, and the very clothes on people's backs. Strangely enough, though, they didn't eat pea plants. Evidently, it's not only kids who don't like eating peas. 
Well, Laura Engels Wilder, the woman who wrote the series Little House on the Prairie, she relates the memory she has of the plague when it hit. She said, you could hear the millions of jaws biting and chewing. After a couple of family members went outside the house, they quickly returned. Laura writes this, Grasshoppers went into the house with them. Their clothes were full of grasshoppers. Some jumped into the hot stove where Mary was starting supper. Ma covered the food till they uh, could chase and smash every grasshopper. She swept them up and shoveled them into the stove. One family in that area died within one week, starving to death because there was simply nothing left to live, or to eat, live on. New York Times correspondent wrote this, The reach of the locusts knows no bounds. They infiltrate every nook, and the residents even had to pat down their bedding before retiring. They beat against the houses, swarmed on the windows, they covered the passing trains, they went as if sent to destroy. That's what Joel's telling the people, that these locusts were sent, they were sent by God to destroy their crops. They were intended as a, a wake-up call for a sinful nation. Now, I have to say, in our day, if this were to happen again, which it easily could, and there was another massive locust plague, I guarantee you it would be attributed to global warming, not the wrath of God. And even some Christians would argue that God has nothing to do with these natural disasters. But countering that type of thinking is the prophet Joel or Amos who said this, When a trumpet sounds in the city, meaning to, as an alarm, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Amos 3.6. That brings us to our second point. The prophet calls on the people to wail. Now, in talking about wailing, I am not talking about the work of men like Captain Ahab, doggedly pursuing the great white whale, Moby Dick, who bit off his leg. Arr, I'll get me revenge. Rather, by wailing... Joel's speaking here about the sorrow and suffering and the way you vent your pain through audible outbursts. I saw this once when a doctor came out and announced to a mom and a dad that their child had just died. When you look at verses 5 to 12, we see that the prophet Joel calls on various groups of people to wail because of the locusts and the devastation and what it means for them. The first group he points out are the drunkards. Look what it says in verse 5. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that's cut off from your mouth. Now, it's interesting that the, the drunkenness is the only specific sin that's actually mentioned in the book of Joel. Now, the Bible doesn't outright forbid the drinking of alcohol. Psalm 104, 15, David praises God because, quote, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for people to use. You allow them to produce food from the earth, wine to make, the, uh, make them glad, olive oil to soothe their skin, and bread to give them strength. And yet we know as Christians that God commands us in Ephesians 5, 18, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. In other words, you're going to get into all kinds of trouble and do all kinds of wicked things. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And according to 1 Corinthians 6.10, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Well, since drunkards live to drink, their reason for living was coming to an end. They may not wail because of their sins, but they're going to wail when the bottle is empty and the wineries have all been shut down. The locust plague was going to make sure that happens. Look what it says in verse 6. For a nation has invaded my land. He's talking about the locusts as if they were foreign invaders. Mighty and without number, its teeth are like the teeth of lions and its fangs like those of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Now we're told the people to wail like a virgin, girded in sackcloth for the bridegroom of your youth. 
You know, the singer Madonna, she sings a song like a virgin, but she doesn't do it when she's girded in sackcloth. I like the way the New Living Translation renders this verse. Weep like a bride dressed in black, mourning the death of her husband. The wedding day has come. The guests are arriving. But the bride gets a call from her brother. There's been a car accident. The groom was just pronounced dead at the site. That's the kind of sorrow that Joel's calling on the people to express. He said for in verse 9, For the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. And as a result, the priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. They can't offer up the necessary sacrifice because the field is ruined. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil dries up. Obviously, the destruction by these locusts would mean the ruin of the farmers as well. That's why it says in verse 11, Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the fields, is destroyed. The vine dries up, and the fig trees fail. The pomegranate and the palm also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field dry up. You know, one of the farmers in the 1874 locust plague said he saw his entire crop of corn completely eaten away in 45 minutes. There was nothing left. 1845 to 1852 in Ireland, they were hit by what was called the potato blight. Now, usually when one kind of crop fails because of disease, you just turn to another crop. I mean, if the wheat fails, you turn to corn or barley or some other grain. But for the Irish, the potatoes was not just their staple crop. It was basically the only thing they lived on. When the potato crop failed, the people starved in hundreds and thousands. It's estimated that one million people starved. Millions more moved to other countries like the United States and Canada and Australia. Did you know that even today, 170 years after the famine, there are still less people who live in Ireland than before the famine hit? In Joel's day, they couldn't switch to another crop or food stuff because all of it was being destroyed by the locusts. It says all the fields, uh, trees of the field are dried up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. So what was the answer to the devastating natural disaster? I mean, is it higher taxes and more government control over the means of protection? In the 1930s, the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, collectivized all the farms in the Ukraine. As a result of the famine ensued with mass starvation. It's estimated that 3.9 million people died in that famine. Stalin was pleased with the results. Mao Zedong, the leader of China, did and outperformed Stalin. Under his collectivization policies, known as the Great Leap Forward, an estimated 45 million people starved to death. Ah, the blessings of socialism, which many are trying to bring to our country today. You have elites in our country seeking to reduce the amount of acres under cultivation in the world by 30% in the name of climate control. I have no doubt they're hoping for the same results that Mao and Stalin achieved. Joel didn't tell the people to cry out to the United Nations or the International Monetary Fund or Bill Gates Foundation. Rather, he said they needed to cry out to the Lord. And that brings us to our third our last heading for the chapter. Following in the verse, it says, in, uh, to cry out, in verse three, 13, it says this, Gird yourself with sackcloth, and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord, and cry out to the Lord, alas, for the day. Listen carefully. The call to repent has to go 
to, uh, has to be brought in to and then go out from the ministers. If it doesn't begin in the heart of a pastor, it's not likely to begin at all. What's needed is for the word of God to be proclaimed and people to acknowledge their sins and turn back to God crying out to him to rescue them. Isaiah 55, 6-7 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous his thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God and he will freely pardon them. You know, the amazing thing is not that God would bring judgment on a sinful nation. How can he not if he's a holy, just God? What's amazing is that this God who hates sin with every fiber of his being is willing to pardon those who turn to him even those who've treated him with such contempt. Listen carefully. Our country's facing some serious problems. We have violence in the streets, corruption in the highest level of our governments, constant lying from our public health officials, inflation is rising, the stock market is tanking, savings are being wiped out, the national debt stands at $31 trillion, divide that by the number of taxpayers in the United States, and your portion comes out to be $92,000 per person. I want you to listen carefully. There's only one of three ways that a country can pay off debts. They can either repudiate the debt, which means we're just not going to pay it, in which case all your grandparents who are living on Social Security are going to have no money to eat. Or you can tax your way out of it, but if you do that, the economy tanks and you you can't do anything. Or you can pay it off honestly. I guess there's four ways. And to pay it honestly, we'd have to cut basically three-fourths of the spending in the United States and it would still take us about 25 years. That's not going to happen. Or the last thing you can do is you can just print a lot of money and inflate it away. Which one does it look like they're doing? And folks, those are just the problems that we're facing right now. God only knows what's coming down the path. What I do know is this. If we don't repent, we're going to face greater judgment in this country. For the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Now, there's a future day of the Lord at the time when Jesus returns where God brings punishment upon the nations. But Joel is arguing that the day of the Lord was being foretasted by the people of his time. The locusts had devoured everything. The crops were gone, and they were staring famine in the face. Surveying the damage, he asks this in in verse 16. He says, Has not the food been cut off from before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of God? The seeds shrivel under the clods? because of the drought. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there's no pasture for them. Even the flock of sheep suffer. Texas ranchers face are forced to sell cattle in extreme heat. That was a headline story from the Spectrum News recently. It said this, Every week, Brian Luceman takes cows to be auctioned off. But things have become difficult this summer, and many are being forced to sell their beef cattle sooner. Quote, usually our rushes come in the fall, Lusman said. It started every month, and it started every uh, months earlier because of the dry weather and the feed shortages and everything else. Lusman said that on average, they, uh, they're averaging 1,000 to 1,400 cattle per week at the auction which is double what they would normally see at this time. Drought on top of high prices everywhere is devastating. Dry grass means no grazing for the cows, causing the ranchers to get rid of the cattle. It's heartbreaking for them because they don't, know what to, uh, they don't want to sell their cattle. They uh, raise them and they don't want to get rid of them, but they have to. If the drought continues any longer, Lusman said, they will not, there will not be many left to sell next year. 
He said, rain is much needed. Listen to his last line. There ain't, much, there ain't nobody that can order that but Mother Nature. General rain is what's needed on the whole state. Folks, listen carefully. It's not Mother Nature, but God the Father, who can just as easily withhold the rain as it is to send it. It's not because of global warming that the animals suffer. It's because of mankind's sin. It says in Isaiah 24, 4-6, The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Now, Joel ends this chapter by saying this, To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Folks, you can, you can ignore God, and the nation can ignore God, but they can't ignore His judgment when it comes. And the problem is because so God is so patient and long-suffering and slow to wrath, we think that He's indifferent to our sins. But Paul reminded the people in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, he asked this question, Or do you think lightly of the riches and the kindness and tolerance and patience of God, not knowing that the kindness of God is to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you're storing up for yourself wrath against that day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each man according to his deeds. Do you remember what uh, God said to Abraham when he promised that him and his descendants would possess the land of Canaan. He said they're going to go down into Egypt and they'd be slaves for 400 years. And the reason was, was because the sins of the Amorites had not yet reached their full measure. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the sins of America have reached its full measure? Our government promotes theft by an unjust tax system. Our politicians subvert elections. We have doctors mutilating the genitals of little boys and little girls. Our government promotes every kind of perversion and it's paraded on the streets in major cities. And 63 million unborn babies have been aborted since 1973. Remember when God confronted Cain over the murder of his brother Abel? He said, your brother's blood cries out from the ground to me. Does God not hear the cries of 63 million babies that have been slaughtered? Right about now you're thinking, well, thank you, Pastor, for that depressing sermon. Do you remember what I told you last week? Most people would rather have a comforting lie than a hard truth. The hard truth is that we are already a nation under judgment, and apart from national repentance, it is going to get much, much worse. Okay, then. What can we do about it? Can't change Washington. But there are some things we can do. Here's the first one. Let the repentance begin with you. Which of us, even if we're believers, doesn't still have sins that we need to turn from? The people in Israel, of Israel in Joshua's day, most of them were saved, and yet in his farewell speech to them, he told them to put away their remaining idols. All of us need a regular moral house cleaning. David asked the question in Psalm 139, 23-24, he says, says, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Second thing we need to do is continue to trust God no matter what happens. 
The prophet Habakkuk was struggling to keep his faith at a time when the Babylonian invasion was near at hand. He realized he could do nothing to stop this judgment from coming upon his nation. He said this in response. He said, I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I trembled, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. But then in faith he wrote these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vine, though the yield of the olive tree should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there's no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hind's feet and make me to walk on the high places. The third thing you can do is you can join with others in prayer and call out to God and ask him to send repentance and revival to our nation. Back in the spring of 1877, after two years of terrible locust plagues, three years in a row, they were facing this. At that time, there was no pesticides to stop the locusts, no crop insurance in case you lost it all. Worse yet, many were facing the possibility of real famine. As the new growing season was getting ready, state state, uh, forecasters in Minnesota said that they were going to have a tougher year this year than before because billions of locust eggs are soon to hatch. It was estimated that 50,000 of the state's 80,000 square miles of farmland would be affected. Well, with the farmers already in debt, many were fearful, some despairing, but what could they do? Where could they turn? Well, Minnesota Governor John Pillsbury had a novel idea. He proclaimed April 26, 1877, as a day of fasting and humiliation and prayer and urged every woman, man, and child to ask God to prevent the impending scourge. Now, I have to tell you, even then, some mocked at the governor, but many answered the call. Schools and shops closed, and thousands crowded into churches across the state to pray and ask God to show them mercy. And then something really strange happened. The day that they gathered to pray was unusually warm in Minnesota. And so all the locust eggs started to hatch. But later, that night, it began to rain, and the rain turned to freezing rain, and then to snow. And several days later, when the snow all melted, there were billions and billions and billions of dead locusts. Psalm 50, 15 says this, Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you shall glorify me. While other Americans sleep at dawn, let us be up and praying for a perishing nation. May God give us the grace. Let's pray now. Our Father in God, five years ago, a sermon like this, a person would yawn. But as we, we watch what goes on in our country, where there's a drought going on, there's fires in the west, there's corruption everywhere, it's easier to believe that you might bring these kind of judgments upon us. But Father, I want to ask what the prophet asked, that in your wrath you remember mercy. And I pray that we would be people who are faithful to be what we're supposed to be, light and salt, even in a dark and dimming world. Help us, Lord. We thank you that you've provided all the things that we've needed so far, and we're going to count on you to do the same in the future. 
But Father, in the midst of this, we know there's people who are starting to ask serious questions about life and what really matters, and we pray that we would be there with the answers because your word provides them all. So bless us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.